Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. Does it change the tactical perspective? No, not at all. But, you know, I think what it does is it helps us understand these ideas better. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Colin Zimmerman discussing some of the little-known stories surrounding the winter encampment of 1776. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the Small Battle Series, with two new releases, The Battle of Musgrove's Mill, 1782, by John Buchanan, and The Battle of Harlem Heights, 1776, by David Price. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Colin Zimmerman, and he'll be discussing some of the stories and facts that are little known about the dark and perilous winter of 1776. One of the things that I love about historical research and publication is that it allows historians to dive deeper into topics that most people in society have already closed the proverbial book on. We know the story of 1776. Countless books have been written about it. All of them very good, by the way. Uh, But they all tell the same story. That is to say, George Washington's Continental Army in dire straits and the tremendous miraculous victory that comes after. What if the straits weren't as dire as they may have seemed, however? What if upon closer inspection, there's a much more important story to be told? That's much more nuanced, in fact. Colin Zimmerman's new article does just that. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Colin Zimmerman. Colin Zimmerman, welcome back. Oh, it's great to be back. Thanks. Colin, remind us about your background. Yeah, I, um, uh, I'm, I work for Washington's Crossing. Um, as their historian, um, I have a background, uh, master's military history, and I'm um, almost finishing up a PhD. Looking forward to that. But uh, as far as that, I've been been around the community most of my life, and uh, you know, I just uh, I, I love the revolution. I love writing about it. I love studying it, and uh, I love telling the story when I can. What first drew your interest into this topic? Well, one of the things. Um, that I that I really enjoy about the revolution or studying it. There's there's uh, there's a lot of open uh, open terrain for scholarship, and uh, you know a lot of the big battles, a lot of the key events have have been written about. But what I like to call the peripheral stuff, the the build up and the aftermath and kind of the the in between. Um, what I like to call maybe the real story, right? The full story of the war uh, <clears throat> needs a lot of you know still needs a lot of help and 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 a lot more scholars to come in and, and open those stories up. So um, this article in particular came about um, 
through through working at the crossing and and, and kind of dealing with it on on a daily basis and and kind of looking at how can I how can I tell the story differently how can I add to the story and and certainly one of the things um, that I've always appreciated uh, about Washington's Crossing or the soldiers themselves and and what they endured how they endured it and that kind of led to this question of you know we we see the paintings we hear the stories we see the frozen ice and and you know what was it like for these soldiers and and you know for the moment in time that they crossed the river, uh, that's just the moment, right? But what about the two weeks, the, to the three weeks before that, the build up to it? And, and, you know, how did the weather, how did their experience affect them or limit them uh, from, from pulling off what they essentially pulled off, you know, the, the Christmas miracle? Colin, what is the traditional image of the Continental Army in 1776? Well, well sure. I mean, the short answer to that is it's the, it's the, you know, the birth of the ragged rebel myth, right? You know, here's this, uh, dejected, defeated army that comes out of New York, and you know, uh, you know, in air quotes, you know, they're naked, they're starving, you know, and and they're disintegrating. And and while I certainly believe there's truth in that, and and probably a lot of the truth, it, it can't be the entire truth. And I think one of the things when we look at um, a lot of the early scholarship, uh, particularly from the Republic days, I mean, there's this need to really paint this image, right? This we need these heroes, we need this this, you know, uh, birth story of, of America. And, and it's certainly this idea of, of a bunch of, you know, hungry, frozen, you know, scantily clothed soldiers crossing the river on Christmas night and attacking Trenton uh, adds to this idea. And of course, you know, with any topic, I guess, in history, any large topic, a lot of mythology grows out around it. And uh, um, <clears throat> I guess the, the traditional image in this case is, you know, these guys are so ragged and they're so uh, limited, right, with, with with equipment and clothing and and everything they can do, and it's almost makes the you know the impossible, you know, the story of Trenton, the story of the crossing, it almost seems impossible. And 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 as I'm looking at it, you know, there's got to be a deeper truth to it. So um, maybe perhaps the image that we've that we've always kind of thought, you know, while while they're certainly ragged, while they're certainly um, in in a bad way, there's maybe it's not as bad as we thought, right? I mean. You know, if they're going to pull off what they pull off, they can't be completely, you know, um, uh, you know, unable to do it through through logistical means and supply means and things like that. So um, it's kind of a, you know, here they are, but what's the real story behind it type of thing. In your article, Colin, you break this down into wings or components of the army. Let's start with the most important, George Washington's wing. What's going on there? Oh, okay. Yeah. So, um, it, it may be more than four. Um, I broke it into four for simplicity's sake, but, uh, I'm sure a more keen eye could probably, um, you know, pick apart some of the, you know, the militia encampments and kind of separate them. But for the general idea, I, I, I stuck with four, but yeah, Washington's, you know, Washington and, and his soldiers kind of seem to be the, the apex of the story or the, or the core of the story, I guess. And, um, you know, they're probably in the worst condition um, from when I was able to kind of piece together and, and, and kind of present. And, and a large part of that has to deal with, you know, um, their retreat through New Jersey and how they retreated and, and uh, you know, with Cornwallis on them and things like that. So uh, at, at one point, perhaps in the, in the middle of the retreat, Washington orders uh, the tents and the extra baggage burned. And, you know, and, and while that frees up the Army, right, allows them to march faster, um, you know, down the road, it's going to come to hurt them, uh, 
you know, especially when they they begin to cross uh, into Bucks County, Pennsylvania on December 7th. And, you know, some of the accounts will talk about, you know, we slept in the woods and uh, it was cold that night and the frost, you know, and most of these guys are probably wearing hunting shirts still and, you know, um, and they've had the same clothes on for a few months. So uh, it probably wasn't a very pleasant time. Um, but these are the soldiers, uh, at least in Washington's wing, they're, they're the ones that are going to build and, and kind of uh, get into the brush huts or kind of find their way into people's barns or the Thompson Mill and things like that. So um, they're the first to arrive in the area. They're the longest to remain in the immediate uh, environs of the Bucks County encampment, uh, and they probably have the, the hardest and uh, the biggest hardship uh, and the most endurance of all the soldiers. What do we see from John Sullivan's wing of the Army? Sure. So Sullivan, Sullivan has a neat story, um, as, as probably the listeners very well know. They were, uh, Sullivan's column was originally Charles Lee's column, and uh, we all know Lee gets captured, uh, and Sullivan kind of takes it over and, and brings the men down. Part of his column, uh, as they're coming through, they're going to kind of link up with part of the Canadian column coming down, uh, and the Canadian troops are going to be in a, in a bad way. Uh, similar to Washington's uh, wing, uh, whereas it appears, based on the accounts, um, you know that you know they they at least the men in Sullivan's wing mentioned you know setting up tents and things like that. So it appears that they they kept most of their baggage in the tents, um, which makes sense because they're kind of they're not as uh, hard pressed as Washington's column was through New Jersey. They have more time to kind of move and meander. You know, kind of the uh, maybe the root cause of, of Lee getting captured. But um, you know, even so, uh, clothing-wise, equipment-wise, condition-wise, they're, they're you know, in the same exact condition, most likely, as Washington's men, um, since they were in the same force. But um, they at least got to retain what tents and perhaps what extra blankets and things they do have. Uh, again, the Canadian troops, they're, the, the American troops that were coming from Canada, uh, seem to be in a little bit of a bad way. There's some, there's some mention of them. Uh, having to get billeted in house and and kind of building some brush huts themselves, so it seems to be uh, overall this this combined wing of Sullivan's uh, force or seems to be better off in Washington, but not entirely comfortable. The remaining parts of this force are militia forces. Could you talk about them? Sure. Um, and this is this is kind of the the part that maybe people can can break these down a little further, but for simplicity's sake, um, I kept it in kind of two. And, uh, the first one I'll tackle is, is the, uh, the, the force under Cadwalder, um, which is the Philadelphia militia and, and some of the Delawareans and things like that. So, um, I think it's Peel that writes about, they had to, uh, when they were in encampment near Bristol, um, you know, they, they, they pitched tents and they, they struck the tents to, you know, to get them out of the wind. And they talk about having, uh, floors made of wood and, you know, and, and when I read this account and I was reading through this, I said, my gosh, you know, it's <laughs> what, you know, what an opposite experience of, of the men only a couple of miles north, you know, um, you know, up around uh, McConkie's Ferry and then around Newtown. I said, this is, this is, you know, this is incredible. And uh, so certainly these troops uh, and the Cadwalder's force <clears throat> have a much better, much better circumstance um, than, than their brethren up in the North and with the continental forces. So, uh, and a big part of this, I mean, obviously they're, they're locals, um, you know, and there's, and there seems to be, at least with these militia forces, much more, um, you know, probably one of the things I didn't really mention, um, with Sullivan and, and Washington's wing is, you know, the, the population of Bucks County is not exactly completely thrilled. There's a few thousand, um, ragtag and 
you know, sm- smelly soldiers kind of prowling around their, their, their environs. So, uh, and of course you, if you couple that in with, you know, the predominantly, you know, predominantly Quaker, um, there's a lot of loyalist sentiments and of course there's Patriot sentiments, but, um, you know, not exactly everyone's willing to open their doors and, and to kind of help these soldiers out. So, uh, but it appears based on kind of the analysis of the accounts with the Cadwallader's men that the, that the, the townspeople uh, or the, the, the local people in the region, which were much more receptive um, to these forces, um, whether or not that has to do with the town, whether or not it has to do with the fact that these soldiers are from this region, um, I guess that's up for interpretation, but uh, certainly it appears that way. So um, they kind of live in relative comfort. I know Rodney um, with his Delaware company writes about being built in Philadelphia for a few days. Uh, <laughs> Where, where they say after that, the real soldier experience kind of started. So um, that's one force. And, of course, uh, they'll get Hitchcocks. Um, the New Englanders will come down, uh, which were part of Washington's force. So there will be soldiers uh, from Washington's you know, extended wing sent down to the Bristol area. Uh, but from what I could find, their conditions are somewhere in between um, the, the – uh, you know, the Cadwallader's men and, and then the suffering of Washington's men further north. So uh, those troops who at least to have appeared to have uh, found some kind of comfort, it also appears they may have even kind of received from some tents from the region. Um, but that's that's still kind of up for <laughs> up for interpretation in that matter. Um, the second force is I wouldn't necessarily call it really much of an encampment at all, but it's it's this, you know, what I combined in Dickinson and in the, in the Ewing um, and the other extended militia forces that are in between Bristol and what is now Washington's Crossing. Um, these troops, this militia force, um, obviously they're not, you know, they didn't really come from far. They're, they're New Jersey and Pennsylvania troops. Um, and it appears that they're going to be uh, more or less manning outposts along the river and kind of staying within the region um, from what I could find in just in people's homes or uh, being billeted in, in maybe some barns and things like that. But relative comfort, you don't hear much complaining from them uh, or from Cadwallader's force rather than just the wind and the weather. Colin, you say in your article that the placement of these soldiers for their encampment was very strategic in nature. Uh, explain. Yeah, so this, was, uh, this has got to be, for at least for me, one of the, one of the more, more important points um, of, of kind of how things and the reason why. So, um, and, and to kind of tie back into the memory side of things, you know, there's, there's this memory of the 10 crucial days or, or, you know, the winter campaign, whatever, whatever you choose to call it. But, you know, there's this idea, well, we cross and then Trenton, Assenpink, Princeton and on. And there's not much, there's not much thought given into the buildup, right? And, and aside from, aside from, you know, General Washington, you know, and, and his staff and, and the coming of this idea, but there's not much, you know, they're just kind of here, they're kind of camping and, and, um, but, you know, for people that study military, you know, it's, you know, they, in military tactics and military history. I mean, you know, certainly the story, you know, resides within the logistics or, or the greater, um, positioning of one's army, right. To affect whatever, uh, operation its general chooses. And, and I think one of the most key events that's going to occur is on December 8th, um, as the final troops of Washington's command are coming out of Trenton into into what's now Morrisville, um, the British Army, right under Cornwallis, they're gonna they're gonna come up and they're gonna say, okay, you know, you took the ferries over, you know, we're just gonna march up to the next 
you know, to Coriel's ferry, um, and we're going to cross and we're going to flank you. Uh, of course, when they arrive at Coriel's ferry, they discover that those ferries are also on the Pennsylvania side, and so are all the boats. So, you know, the British are kind of learning that, you know, Washington had that foresight to remove all the floating, you know, the, the boats and the ships and everything across to the Pennsylvania side. So, uh, of course, they're learning this after, you know, whatever the distance is from Coriel's to uh, it's about 18 miles, maybe 19 miles from Trenton to Coriel's Ferry. So it's a long walk, you know. Um, so Washington has this big fear, right, from, from kind of going through the correspondence and, and certainly, you know, looking at how he um, positions what little force he has. Uh, he has this big fear that the British are going to try to force this crossing at Coriel's Ferry. And there's, of course, a lot of reasons for that. I mean, it's, it's accessible. It's, it's kind of along their line of advance. And uh, if you can kind of get over there, you can easily turn Washington's line. So things like that. So uh, Washington's actually going to position his brigades, if you can call them that, what's left of this army, in kind of an, in, in, in an echelon formation with this, uh, I forget the exact line he uses in the order, but it's something to the effect of, you know, if one brigade is hit, they can fall back upon the other. Um, and for those that have come to Washington's crossing in the area, uh, there are certainly, if you kind of know where he places uh, these, you, these encampments, these uh, formations, they're, they're on Jericho Mountain. And, you know, there's a series of small ridges that are very, very defensible um, to the army. So, um, Washington's going to stick some, you know, maybe perhaps some of his best soldiers uh, at Coriel's Ferry. There's an old fort there. Um, and then if that was the fall, they would fall back to the next bridge over and hopefully protect Philadelphia from an advance. And that's the other big thing that Washington's looking to do is there's, you know, they're going to defend Philadelphia. There's never a question not to. Um, and, you know, to defend it would mean, you know, they could fall back on it. And certainly, you know, Placing his troops where he does makes sense in how he does it, but he's also preparing defenses or at least writing to uh, subordinate officers in Philadelphia, kind of basically saying, lay defenses out here, you know, you might want to do this and that kind of a thing. And whether or not how much of it gets done <clears throat> remains to be seen, but that's certainly what he's doing. So he's, he's looking to protect Philadelphia. He's looking to preserve his army and he's looking to, if it gets attacked, can it survive? And, you know, if they can fall back to this next line, they can hopefully make a stand somewhere. So that's the thought process behind it. We don't know, right, how it would have worked, you know, knock on wood. I mean, the British don't cross or the Crown forces don't cross. Uh, so whether or not it would have been a sound strategy remains to be seen. But certainly he's thinking like that. And I, and I think that's important to point out because while he's it shows it shows the dynamics of washington and, and maybe some of you know the leadership within the army i don't want to give all the credit to washington i think i think some of the other officers had something to do with it too but you know there's certainly this we're defeated mentality but it's but it's we're still an army we still need to do a job and, and part of this we're gonna we're gonna you know remain on the defense right but we're also gonna think foresight you know and how can we reverse the tides of war which well, we know it's going to happen on on uh, the day after Christmas. So, um, but that's that's the kind of the thought process in the weeks leading up to the crossing. Of all the factors that were affecting these men, good, bad, and otherwise, which ones do you think were the most critical? <clears throat> well, I mean, certainly, uh, you know, anybody who's who, who's been in the military, um, you know, uh, particularly in the combat arms, 
side of things will 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 know that you know your 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 platoon, your company, your battalion, whatever is only as good as the logistics that it has, right? You can't you can't ask the world of a soldier and not give him the tools that he needs, right? And one of the incredible things about the Continental Army um, that defies all logic, at least at this point in the war, to me, is is that they're able to endure what is seemingly unendurable, right? Now, while while the article kind of looks at sustainability of it, it's not to take away from the hardships they experience. There's no question, you know, sleeping out in, in Bucks County, Pennsylvania in December, wearing linen clothes in a brush hut, you know, or whatever, even in a tent, I mean, it's not, it's not a pleasant experience, right? It's, it's cold, it's miserable, you're uncomfortable and all that kind of thing. So, um, you know, and then you couple that in with the story we know of, you know, they're going home and, you know, enlistments are going to expire and all this kind of stuff. Right. So certainly the, the, just the elements themselves, right. Are, are incredible. Right. And, and I think for a lot of people, um, the fact that it takes place in the winter and there's ice and it just adds to this, this, you know, it adds to the mystique of it. Right. But, um, you know, they're, it's 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 certainly the weather. I mean, it's certainly a lack of blankets. It's a lack of stockings and you know ripped up breeches and and, and any kind of warm clothing that would be needed. One thing I didn't really find too much of are our soldiers complaining about food or lack of food. So either either they're they're sustained you know they're sustained enough right with the food, or they're, or they're so used to just not having an extensive amount of food they just stop complaining about it. Either way, it doesn't appear to have affected them too much, right? So. Uh, and, and I think the I think I think the action of the crossing, right, and, and the ensuing battle of Trenton, and the fact that they marched back that same day and recrossed again, I think I think that kind of lends, um, you know, to the idea that they were pretty well fed, or at least enough that they could perform the physical exertion that was needed to pull this operation off. I can tell you, as someone who, who who's um, you know a healthy person, an average person today, that I don't know if I I could do that entire operation the way they did it. And, and I certainly would hope I eat much better than they did. So on a daily basis, right? So I think it adds to, you know, one, it adds to the endurance and the mentality of these soldiers. But um, I think the fact that they were able to do what they did in, in, in the manner that they did it lends the idea that at least they were well fed in that respect. They had not been well clothed. They have not been warm enough. But, um, you know, that's about where I leave it. For that so certainly certainly the weather uh certainly you know that kind of thing colin how does this article help us understand the revolutionary era better sure um so um one of the things that i really believe in is is telling the story from the ground up right so um there's plenty of scholarship there's plenty of of books written on general washington there's you know um books written on the campaign studies and things like that but i certainly think adding the human element to the story as, as a, as a, as a layer of depth to it, that helps us kind of relate to it better. That helps us understand, you know, just the enormity of the situation uh, and, and, and may even add a layer of gratitude uh, to, to what those, you know, what those men did, um, uh, you know, on, on, you know, during that campaign. So um, does it change the tactical perspective? No, not at all. But, you know, I think what it does is it helps us understand these ideas better. Um, if you can understand the people that you're writing about, the people that we're telling story about and what they kind of endured um, and how they endured it, it just adds to it. Uh, so I think that's kind of, you know, one of the important things. And that's kind of a lot of what I see 
uh, throughout the field myself. I mean, there's there's certainly other historians, you know, tapping into the same source there or the same well there. So I think it's good to see, and I think that human element of who these people were, right, whether they wore red or blue or whatever, right, um, helps us understand the story that much better. Colin Zimmerman, thanks again. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.